Our passage today is Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 25. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 20. And let's read it and let's ask for the Lord's help to receive it. Mark 11, verse 20. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, just before I begin. I know that many of you will be looking at probably uh, the NIV, and uh, that's okay. That's a good translation too. Uh, But if what I'm reading is worded a little differently from yours, um, that's just, that happens. We have different English translations of the original languages, and I think it gives us a more well-rounded understanding of the, the original wording. Um, I really like the English Standard Version because it's just very disciplined uh, to, to try to get down to the right word. NIV is a little bit more thought for thought, so the translators are trying to translate the thought from Greek into an English thought, whereas the, the ESV is more word for word, not exactly literally word for word. You didn't ask for any of that. Um, all that to say, what I'm reading may be a little different from what you're seeing in your, in your Bibles, but just word choices. Uh, The message is the same. And if you find it confusing, uh, maybe just listen to it. And then as we study along, you can see how yours and mine differ. So, Mark 11, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone. So that your father, who also is in heaven, I'm sorry, your father also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray together. Father, please speak to us clearly in a way that we can understand through your word. You've promised that as Christians, we receive your Holy Spirit who will guide us into all truth, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to your voice, and that this would not be merely an endurance exercise of trying to stay awake, that it would not be merely an intellectual exercise of just trying to learn a few new tidbits, but that this would be a deeply transformative spiritual exercise in which you, through your powerful word, transform us. And we trust you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So, preparing to get into this passage together, I want you to imagine yourself. Think about your life, your relationships, your work, the things you're engaged in day to day. And imagine yourself with perfect faith. Imagine yourself with perfect faith. Unwavering faith. Completely untainted by any doubt. 100% 
persuaded belief in God's character, in God's love for you through Jesus Christ, in God's promises that he's given us in the word, in God's direction and commandments he's given us in the word. Picture yourself living perfectly in light of all these things. What difference would that make in terms of peace, in terms of obedience, in terms of worshipfulness? What difference would that make in terms of service to other people? What difference would it make in terms of evangelism and discipleship? See, that, that faith that we're imagining and we're just sort of dreaming of right now, that is God's intentions for you. That is what God is transforming you into if you're a Christian. That is our destiny. That's where we're headed. That's his intentions for you and for me and a great deal, I believe, of what he would like to do in us through this passage. In this passage, Peter sees this tree. If you remember a couple of, actually just last week we looked at it, but two days prior to this, Jesus had tried to eat figs from this tree and it didn't have any figs and he cursed the fig tree. Now we won't go into to why and what all's behind that, but he cursed this fig tree and then he went to the temple and things happened there. We talked about that a little bit last week. And then the next morning, in verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So Peter, who had seen Jesus perform many miracles already, he had seen Jesus teach with authority that astounded everybody. He had seen Jesus heal sick people, cleanse a leper, forgive sins, walk on water, calm a raging storm. Peter had seen all this. He had seen Jesus glorified in, in, in um, oh man, my mind completely lost the transfiguration. He had seen all this, and now he sees this fig tree, and he, he exclaims about it. He says, look at that. It hasn't even, it's been like 24 hours and this tree that you cursed has withered down to its roots. Now Jesus' response to him in verse 22, and Jesus answered them, so he's addressing all the disciples, have faith in God, reveals that what's going on in Peter is that he's surprised at this. Something about Peter's response indicates that he didn't think it would wither that quickly. Now, we're kind of the same way. If you were here on January 1st, that Sunday, we prayed for Lillian, who had been having dizzy spells and headaches, and we prayed over her, and she stopped having dizzy spells and headaches. And I was like, Peter, I was like, look, I didn't think that was going to happen. Well, why am I surprised? Why was Peter surprised? Why are we surprised when God does things that are beyond what we could accomplish in our ability or even imagine or anticipate? Jesus' response is the key to the passage. And Jesus answered them in verse 22, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Jesus didn't respond with explanation about the fig tree. Well, yeah, it withered because when I spoke this, God the Father made this happen, this change in the molecules and, and whatever. He didn't even explain why he cursed the fig tree. There was no explanation. Instead, it was an exhortation. 
have faith in God. In that moment, that was the lesson that Peter and the disciples needed to hear. They didn't need explanation. They needed exhortation. Have faith in God. I know that that has been all week the lesson that God has meant for me as I've studied this passage. Have faith in God. I strongly suspect that that's the lesson that he means for you to take from this passage as well, because here we are studying it, and I believe that God is sovereign and that uh, nothing happens outside of the realm of his control. And so he brought you here when we landed on this passage this week. And so I have to believe that his message for you this morning with all your intricate, complex circumstances going on, and we all have those, his message is not one of explanation. It's one of exhortation. Have faith in God. God can wither a fig tree in 24 hours. God can save you from your sins. God can direct your paths. God can glorify himself in you and through you. God can bless other people through you. God can save other people through you if you will transmit the gospel. God can make disciples of all nations through you. Have faith in what God can do in your heart, in your life, in our church, in the world. That's basically the sermon. I'm not going to dismiss you yet, though. The big idea, if you are just so sleepy, you've been watching basketball so much that your eyes are, are dried shells of what they used to be and you just can't stand it any longer. Have faith in God. That is God's word to you. But he goes on and he elaborates on that, what that looks like. That's what verses 23, 24, 25 are about. Verse 23 is sort of a guarantee based on this command, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Verse 24 is sort of an implication of that guarantee. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And then verse 25 is kind of an addition to this. And whenever you stand praying, Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So we have a guarantee, we have an implication, and we have an addition. But before we can get into any of that, I have to give you a clarification. This is not name it and claim it theology that Jesus is espousing here. I don't know if everybody's familiar with name it and claim it theology. It's very common in prosperity, preaching, teaching books that you can readily get at Lifeway, Christian bookstores, and and watch on TV. And it's the, I think, well-intentioned but absolutely misguided assertion that if you will have enough faith, God will give you all the health and wealth and prosperity here and now that you want. One example I saw said that some people, some Christians have bicycle faith and some Christians have Rolls Royce faith. Some of you just have enough faith to get a bicycle from God and that's all you're going to ever have because your lousy faith isn't strong enough. 
if you would just by willpower have better faith, you would get a Rolls Royce. You would have Rolls Royce faith. So the reason you're driving around in a junky car is because you're faith, loser. Now, I say it in a ridiculous way, but that is the false teaching. And that is not what Jesus is saying here. That is not what Jesus is saying here. But he doesn't clarify it here. See, when you read through the Bible, you've got to read in light of the Bible. You can't just pull out a couple of verses and build an entire theology on them, disregarding the rest of Scripture. So I'll give you two reasons why this is definitely not prosperity gospel, name it and claim it. Your faith is a a ray gun that will zap your dreams into reality, false teaching. The first reason is because of other scripture. Other scripture makes clear that there are conditions on these kinds of promises. Now you can read these verses and you can kind of see why somebody might think that it was name it and claim it, prosperity gospel. I mean, look at verses 23 and 24 again and you can see how you could get there. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. You can see how you could get from just these two isolated verses to that theology. But let's take into account just three other scriptures. They're not projected, obviously. You can try to find them quickly if you want to, but I've got sticky notes already marking them, so I'm going to beat you there. You may just want to listen. The first one is John 15, 7. John 15, 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So here's one condition that Scripture gives us, an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, wherein you abide in him, your life is hidden in him, your life is all wrapped up in God's love for you, God's identity for you in Christ Jesus. That's your life. And Christ Jesus' words abide in you, they live in you. It's not just that you've heard some of his words, it's not just that maybe you remember some of his words, His words are in you and they are alive in you. They are animating you. They are guiding your life, the way you see the world, the way you prioritize, the way you plan. So this is a pretty big condition right there in just this one verse. Another one in James 4, 3. James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So here's another condition. You Abiding relationship. Here's another one. Worshipful motive. If you're asking just so you can satisfy your own passions and pleasures in the temp- temporary things of this world, you ought not to expect these promises to hold true. Worshipful motives are a condition to being able to realize that these promises we're about to study. Abiding relationship, worshipful motives... One more, 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, 
We know that we have the requests that, be, that have been asked of him. So the third condition that we see here is a submissive will. So if we go to God, apart from any real abiding, vital relationship with Jesus Christ, apart from Jesus' words living in us and directing us, apart from any desire that he be honored and glorified in our lives, and apart from any submission to his will above our own will, we cannot expect him to answer these prayers. And we cannot expect these promises from Mark 11 to hold true. And I'll give you the perfect example of that last one, submissive will. In Mark 14, the night before Jesus is going to be crucified, he's praying. And he prays this in Mark 14, 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. There's the faith in God. Remove this cup from me, this suffering that I'm about to see on the cross. Yet not what I will but what you will. That's the perfect example of this kind of faithful approach to God in prayer. You are able, here's my request, but I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. So that's one reason why this is not name it and claim it theology that Jesus is teaching here. I'll give you one more. Because of the disciples' context in general. Remember, these guys had left everything to follow Jesus. Fishermen just got up, left their boats, their businesses, their fish, their families, their homes to follow Jesus. There's no way that they thought Jesus was talking here about the material blessings and trappings of a wealthy life here and now. There's no way they thought that's what he meant. Nothing about their experience with him would have had them thinking in those terms. The only reason we struggle to understand this is because we are prosperous American suburbanites. And so we're tempted to think that what he means here is if I just really believe and don't doubt, they'll accept my offer on this house. I'll get that promotion. But that can't be what Jesus meant. That can't at all be what he's talking about. So as we enter these two verses, we need to do so with an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ us abiding in him, his words abiding in us, with worshipful motives, desiring his glory, not our own, and submissive will, desiring his will to be done, not our own. We need to look at these as disciples of Jesus Christ, not American consumers. And then we'll understand what he's saying. So first we'll look at the guarantee in verse 23. It says, truly I say to you. Now everything Jesus says is true. It's not like, okay, everything else I was saying, I was just kidding. I'm being for real now. Everything he says is true, but when he says this, truly I say to you, he's pointing out to us the trueness of it. He doesn't just want us to hear what he's about to say. He wants us to remember that this is truth. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Whoever says to this mountain. Now there's good reason to think that when he says this mountain, he means this specific mountain. And he's referring to Jerusalem and the temple that he just 
um, confronted and Israel's weak worship. But Jesus just doesn't make that clear enough here for me to preach that. Uh, but that's something for you to think about and maybe study the scripture. Or there may be another layer here. Um, I think the, the easier, more ready meaning of this passage is that he means move a mountain the same way we tend to think of moving mountains. It's, it's the idea of accomplishing the seemingly impossible. Without doubt, that word doubt, two words put together, back and forth, and judge put together. Without tottering back and forth in our judgment as to whether or not this can happen or not happen. Believes that what he says will come to pass, that belief is persuaded trust in. It's not wish upon a star if I just by willpower hope and hope enough that it'll come true. It's persuaded belief with a basis. What he's saying, the vision he's giving here is have faith in God because when you as a disciple are pursuing God's glory and God's will, you can have utter confidence in God's ability. I picture a child getting ready to jump into a pool. A little child that can't swim, maybe they've got those clumsy arm floaties on, standing at the side and approaching it and backing up, wanting to jump in, and the child's father being in the pool, saying, jump, honey. The father doesn't say, you can do it. The father says, I can do it. I know you can't swim. I know that you're not tall enough to touch the bottom, but I am tall enough to touch the bottom, and I can swim. Have faith in me. And jump. See, he's not, Jesus is not wanting us to be self-asserted, self-assured people. Type A people who just plod through life saying, well, I know this is going to happen because I say it's going to happen. Remember, the overarching umbrella lesson here is have faith in yourself? No. Have faith in your faith? No. Have faith in God. And it will be done for you. The picture is of disciples in an abiding relationship with Christ, with worshipful motives and submissive wills, boldly pursuing God's glory and will with utter confidence, even in the face of the seemingly impossible. Because God can. The same faith that was in Noah's heart as he approached the raw materials for the ark. The same faith in Abraham's heart as he strapped on his sandals to leave his home. The same faith in Moses' heart as he stood between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. That's the kind of faith Jesus is telling his disciples to have. For us, that might look like facing our besetting sins, standing strongly atop the promise in Jesus Christ that he is sanctifying us and that we are dead to sin and that we can walk in newness of life. It may look like obeying God's specific commands that seem logistically impossible to us, but he's called us to do these things. And so we will. It may look like toppling idols in our lives because we know God's will for us is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we will not tolerate other gods rising above him, whatever they may be. It may look like boldness 
and evangelism and witnessing. It may look like bold intentionality and discipleship in relationship with other people. He guarantees, truly, he says to us, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And then he goes on to an implication in verse 24. Therefore, based on that, because of what I just said, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. It's as good as done. And it will be yours. See, that first verse wasn't even talking about prayer yet. It was talking about our action. This verse is talking about prayer. I think often we divorce the two. But prayer, genuine, faithful prayer, is born from bold pursuit of God's will and God's glory. Because we quickly get in over our heads of what we can accomplish. I'm convinced, you know, I shared um, my praise was, what the Lord has been teaching me in this passage this week, and this is really the heart of it. And I'm convinced that I need to repent of this, and I am repenting of this, and I strongly suspect that many of you need to repent of this as well, and that we as a church need to repent of this. I think very often we set our sights way too low. I think very often we set our sights way too low in regard to what we pursue what we expect God to do, and our hope for what he might do. Hudson Taylor, who was a pioneering missionary to inland China, has this famous quote. I'm sure you've heard it. He said, God's work done in God's ways will never lack God's supply. God's work done in God's ways will never lack God's supply. I fear that we subconsciously adopt a different motto in our hearts of our work done in our way will only require our supply. Our work done our way will only require our supply. And therefore, prayer is just a thing we know we're supposed to be doing, but we don't do it enough. I know that I, as your pastor, need to repent from settling for endeavors that we can accomplish when God has called us to endeavors that only he can accomplish. He's called us to obey Jesus' teachings. And so often we just settle for going to church. He's called us to worship him in spirit and truth, and often we just settle for singing three songs on Sunday. He's called us to genuinely, sacrificially love people. And so often we settle for lending a hand so long as it's not inconvenient. He's called us to be witnesses to the furthest reaches of the world and to make disciples of all nations. And so often we settle for an existence of distracting ourselves from our sorrows, letting day by day pass by, giving occasionally to penny crusade. God's message to us, have faith in God. Utter confidence and prayerfulness in pursuit of his glory and will, that he is able. 
You know, before we got into these two verses, I went through great trouble to establish the fact that God is not a genie in the bottle. That he's not here to just grant you your wishes. But I don't want that to undercut the strength of the promise here. He is, he's not a genie, but he is God. He is God. And there are promises here. And though they, they're not the promises that I told you they were not before we got into these two verses, they are promises. Let's read these two verses again and listen for the promises. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. But there's a, an, an addition here. Verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If we abide in Christ, his words abide in us. If, we, if our motives dissolve into the greater worshipful motive of God's glory, if we set aside our will and embrace God's will for us, if we do all these things as disciples and begin radically pursuing God's glory and God's will in our lives, we will be stopped short if we do so in an unforgiving way. It's almost jarring that he puts this in right here. It almost stops the whole flow, the whole momentum of what he's been saying. And forgive. It's almost like the new driver getting into the car and getting ready to drive off and the mom saying, put your seatbelt on. And whenever you drive, put on your seatbelt. Whenever you get ready to go out in the morning, brush your teeth. Whenever you do laundry, separate the darks and the colors. Well, that's the same thing. Separate the darks and the, and the lights. And whenever you stand praying in bold, confident pursuit of God's glory and God's will, forgive. Don't try to move forward in this with bitterness in your heart towards somebody. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, some of you might be thinking, well, I'll forgive most people, but I am not forgiving this person, this thing, ever. If you have anything against anyone, forgive. Anything, anyone, it's not me telling you this, it's God telling you this through his word. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now this opens up a whole theological world that we need to think about that we don't have time to think about today. But this is not the only place where God's forgiveness of us seems contingent upon our willingness to forgive others. So the question for us here in this verse is, whom do we need to forgive? We're going to pray in a minute. Whenever you're praying, forgive. Anything, anyone, 
And no forgiveness equals no forgiveness. So we'll close and I'm going to ask you several questions. These are the questions I've been asking myself all week. And I think these are the questions that the text forces us to ask of ourselves. How is your faith? Are you abiding in Christ? Are Christ's words abiding in you? Is God's glory your goal? Is God's will your desire? And are you pursuing God's glory and will in your life? And if so, are you expecting God to lead you to seemingly impossible tasks and expecting God to supply what you need in the face of those seemingly impossible tasks? Or do you, like I so often have done, settle for only those things that you can accomplish through your own abilities? Let's have faith in God together. Let's pursue his glory together. Let's pursue his will together. Let's trust in his ability together. Let's pray. Father, please help us to have faith in you. We believe, but help our unbelief. Lord, you know each person here, each heart, just like you know me. You know exactly what rearrangements need to be made. You know exactly where repentance needs to happen. Confession. You know where steps forward need to be taken. Lord, I pray that you would please, in light of your word this morning, that you would guide us. That you would mold us, each and every one individually, and therefore us as a church collectively, into people of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.